Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. This is the second part of our Chinatown series, where we discuss the making of Roman Polanski's 1974 masterpiece. And today's guest is character actor Alan Warnick. Chinatown is Alan's best-known role, and if you've seen the film, you remember Alan from the perfect and very funny scene in the Hall of Records, where he plays the stuck-up clerk who tells Jack Nicholson that this is not a lending library. Alan worked on several other films during the era, starting with Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider follow-up The Last Movie, and then appearing in films like Mother Jogs in Speed by Peter Yates, alongside actors like Harvey Keitel and Raquel Welch, Posse by and with Kirk Douglas, Rocky II by and with Sylvester Stallone, and also in the Chinatown sequel The Two Jakes, directed by Jack Nicholson, where he appears as another snooty clerk. In our conversation, Alan shares his memories of the Chinatown shoot and his other appearances as an actor, and he provides a captivating glimpse of the era itself, including a run-in with Charles Manson. The Chinatown interviews were conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz, so if you speak German, please visit www.lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 56, which features an in-depth discussion of Polanski's film. Also, make sure to listen to Talking Pictures episodes number 19 and 21, in which I talk to Chinatown assistant director Hawk Koch and to editing expert Bobby Osteen, the wife of late Chinatown editor Sam Osteen. If you enjoy my conversation with Alan Warnick, please visit TalkingPicturesPodcast.com to check out our other interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is Alan Warnick recalling how he became an actor. Well, I've always been interested in movies. Um, a good friend of mine in high school, uh, David Anson, who went on to become the senior editor of um, Newsweek magazine, which um, ended a few years ago, and went on to uh, make the selections for LA Film Festival and Palm Springs Film Festival. He's there now. We went to movies all the time, and it was um, early 60s, so it was a good time to be going to the movies, and we saw all the, you know, the Truffaut and the Fellini and all the things that um, just, I, I guess you'd consider it the new wave of uh, French and Italian cinema. Um, I, you know, I went to Beverly Hills High School, which was kind of the center of, um, well, most everybody in the area was connected with the film business in one way or another. Um, so there was that exposure. Um, a lot of people had screening rooms and. Um, which was kind of unusual at the time. And, um, you know, I was very, uh, when I discovered Roman's films, I was very keen on those. They were um, just a wonderful um, new vision to me. Um, so uh, that's how it kind of began. And I hadn't really thought about being involved in anything more than Spectator, and then um, there was a magazine that um, was it was more local than uh, although I heard it was international. It didn't live too terribly long. It was called Cinema Magazine, and it was published in Beverly Hills. And I knew the um, editor; his uncle was the publisher, who I also knew, and they were. Um, 
there was a, a movie game being put together called The Last Movie that Dennis Hopper did in Peru. Um, and a bunch of people I knew were going down to do that movie. So I spoke to the editor who um, became a film director. His name is Curtis Hansen. He did, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, the, I forget that movie. It was noir and it did quite well. Maybe LA Confidential. Yeah, LA Confidential. Yes, right. So this was prior to that, and he was very keen on the reason. Um, I told him I'd like to go to Peru and do a story on this movie. And so he said, sure. And um, so I flew down. Um, it was in Machu Picchu, which is very high up. And um, that was the first time I spent any time on a film and I knew Dennis uh, Harper. And, um, you know, I said to him, well, because um, so many of my friends were in the movie, I said, I think I should be in this. He said, well, you are. <laughs> and so um, I, there was sort of no script at that time. I mean, it, it was just largely because we were at such a high altitude, kind of whoever showed up on the set worked that day. And a lot of the guys who are big drinkers, um, you know, there's this drink called Pisco, which is a national drink of Peru, and they would all get drunk that night and some of them just wouldn't make it to work. So whoever made it to work was in the movie and it was <clears throat> great fun. Sam Fuller was um, in the movie, you know, the director, and um, I played his assistant. And Sam, you know, who even then, which was many years before he died, um, treated me as if I was his, his assistant. He told me what time to wake him up. And, you know, it was because it was a movie within a movie. And it was very funny. Lots of great people, Sylvia Miles and I were great chums. She was in um, Midnight Cowboy. She made a big impression there. And um, Chris Christopherson, that was the beginning of his career. All his songs had just become well known and he was there, it was his first job. And uh, so it was a great bunch of people. We had a lot of fun. And, um, and then when I came back to Los Angeles, I thought, well, I should do this. So um, I got an agent and I started to do um, some commercials and um, this was, I don't know how far before Chinatown, I kind of lose track, um, but um, I was a friend of Jack's and he would let me read the script of whatever film he was going to do next to see if there was something for me. So I read Chinatown, I thought it was great. Um, and I was a little disappointed because the only thing that seemed fine for me was, um, the scene in the Hall of Records, which was such a small scene, I thought. And so he said, yeah, I agree. That's what I was thinking of for you. So um, I went down to the set one day um, and Jack was walking in to start to shoot and Roman was coming the other way. And he stopped and um, said, uh, I, I had met Roman um, a few times 
of parties and things and was actually at, he had been married in London, but he had another wedding reception in Los Angeles that I went to with my good friend, Peggy Lipton, who was a friend of Sharon's. And um, he said, what do you think about Al for the Hall of Records? And at that time, I mean, it was, most people had long hair. My hair was down to my shoulders and Roman and I are the same height. And he, he just came up to me, pulled my hair back and, you know, just looked into, into my face and he said, yes, he's perfect. And that was that. And that's what I loved about Roman. Um, he didn't dick around. I mean, if he thought someone was right, uh, he didn't have to do 20 readings or see a bunch of other people, you know, he had an idea a concept, and if you fit the concept, then you have the job. Um, so that's how that happened. And when um, the day that I, oh, first they cut off all my hair. Um, and at that time, if you had really short hair, you were looked on as either someone who was in the army or as if you were from another planet, you know? I mean, it was just so odd to, going to a market or something. And um, I'm still thinking of myself as a person with long hair, even though it's short, but <laughs> people look at you like, why do you have that haircut? It was, it was very, a very bizarre feeling. The day I shot, um, it was the end of the film. And um, uh, I was working, Harry Dean Stanton, who didn't appear in the film, was working in the morning. He was a friend of Jack's as well. And Harry Dean played a scene that was not in the movie and was kind of missed. He played, um, he was the pilot flying Jack to Catalina. Mm -hmm. As you may recall, Jack is suddenly in Catalina and it's sort of like, well, how did he get there? What's that connection? What, did I miss something? Well, Harry Dean was pissed off because he thought he should have had a bigger part. And so rather than learn his lines, he didn't learn his lines. And Roman has no patience for that. He does quick takes and on to the next. And at this point, if he were able to finish the film that day, everybody would get, because it was under budget, everyone would get big bonuses, you know, the principals. and. Um, so to start the day working with Harry Dean and Harry Dean was hungover and unapologetic, just sort of, so it created a bad sort of setup. Um, so I heard about this, um, Howard Koch was a good friend of mine. He, when I arrived, he said, Faye isn't working today. I have her dressing room for you. And they treated me so well. And um, he said, you know, uh, uh, Harry Dean really fucked up and the mood is not great. So I hope you're ready. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's quite a confidence booster, right? <laughs> yeah, so it just made me feel very comfortable. Um, and so, um, you know, the first time you really, I had a glimpse of the set, but that whole Hall of Records was actually built. Um, I mean, as authentic as it looks, it wasn't in a building, it was all on the stage. And I just was getting comfortable behind the desk and Roman was getting ready and Jack and I were hanging out and um, we did uh, a rehearsal, uh, a brief rehearsal. And um, 
I didn't, as it was just a, a walkthrough, I didn't do any of the things or I didn't get as into character as I did when we shot. So I, I noticed that uh, Bob Evans was there, who was the head of the studio at the time. Angelica Houston was there, who's a friend and was also involved with Jack at the time. Everyone had come down to watch because it was the last, the last sequence. Um, so uh, we did the first take and it was, um, it was really good. I mean, I think that was the one they used and Jack was very funny because I mean, he's an actor and a great actor, but as an actor, of course, in, in any scene, he's, you know, he's a little com not competitive, but he said to me after the scene, you didn't do any of those things in the run through aisle. You know, my, some of the stuff I did looking for the pencil stuff like that. So he was greatly relieved that it wasn't another Harry Dean thing because there was this sort of view of, oh great, another friend of Jack, this could be a nightmare. And um, we, you know, it all went fairly quickly and everyone was very happy. We finished um, before the end of the day and um, everybody got their bonuses and it turned out well. But when I left that day, cause um, you know, who knew at that time Chinatown would become what it has become. My thinking, I was kind of depressed. My thinking was, oh, I got my hair cut off. This little scene, who's ever going to see this movie? You know, little did I know that for the next 15, 20 years, I would be called on uh, job interviews because of that scene. Because even though it wasn't hugely popular at the time, um, it seemed as if everyone had seen the movie and for some reason, um, everyone remembered my scene. And when I was at, Jack would have screenings of his movies and um, I had met him way before Cuckoo's Nest, before he you know, became a big star. So we were friends from before him being Jack Nicholson. Um, and we both walked out of the screening at the same time to go to the men's room. And he said to me, you know, yours is the only scene in the movie that gets a big laugh. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah. And so um, it was a good experience. I mean, all in all, it's, it's uh, through the years. It's nice to know that you're a part of something that is a film classic, that is of high quality, that was a great experience. And, uh, you know, my feeling is I've, I've worked with other people on other jobs, nothing of that caliber in terms of uh, quality or writing or any of that. And my feeling is, you know, I've been a part of a, a great piece of film history and that's a nice thing to have done. Mm -hmm. Do people recognize you uh, from that scene? Do people uh, approach you on the street uh, and say, hey, you're oh. that guy? <laughs> uh, um, no, because uh, so much time has passed and they did early on um, around town, around Beverly Hills, people would stop me and say, oh, that was so great. Or, um, but more often I would get a call from someone who said, um, you know, I, I saw your, I didn't know you were in Chinatown. I mean, this is as recent as a few weeks ago and so much time has passed. And I heard your voice from the other room and I came in and um, it was so, you were so great in that scene. It was so good to see you. And oddly enough, um, 
I mean, I think I look quite different from I did what I looked like in the early 70s, but, um, you know, I recognize people that I haven't seen in 50 years, like from high school. No matter how much they've changed, I can see, because I'm very visual, that person underneath that layer of fat or lines or whatever. So if I'm walking down the street and I see someone I haven't seen in 50 years, I'll say, oh, hi, Chuck, how's it going? And and they immediately recognize me for some reason. You mm -hmm. know? So that's always been the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you have a very, um, a very distinctive face. Um, I mean, you, you were talking about um, the, the difference with the hairstyle. Um, and I've seen you in your, uh, like in the last movie, for example, um, before you got the short hair. Um, and I think mm -hmm. just with your features, um, you're immediately recognizable. And then through Chinatown <laughs> and the other uh, roles that you did, um, just if it's... So you actually, you saw the last Yeah, movie? I've seen it. You're one of 10 people. <laughs> the ironic part is, you probably know this because you're such a film nerd. The, uh, the movie went to Venice and it got the Golden Palm that year. And then it went to New York and there were great expectations. And, you know, it was the same year as the last picture show. And of course, the last picture show got all the attention. and. Um, it opened to the worst reviews of any movie that had been seen for a long time because it was simply unintelligible. Um, what happened was Dennis, um, uh, there was the movie within the movie that took the first part and that was really <clears throat> kind of more interesting in many ways than the rest of it because the rest of it just involved him and this girl wandering around and you know it didn't make a great deal of sense. And, at that time, cocaine was very popular, probably still is for many people, but um, Dennis would send out, because of course you couldn't open a film tin uh, because it would expose the film. So Dennis would send cocaine out in some of the film tins. So he would have enough coke to get through the editing period. So, he got into the editing room with all this coke and spent a year, you know, just assembling something that meant something to him, but basically to nobody else. And one of the tip, one of the moments that kind of changed everything on the location were in Machu Picchu and above, I mean, not Machu Picchu, we're in um, Cusco. This was at a time when they'd seen few, never mind people from America, but few white people the first time a movie had been shot. They just didn't understand. It was, it was very uh, unique to them. So what happened was, um, and they were happy to have us for the, the attention and publicity. Um, we borrowed the horse for the Western sequence where uh, someone, I don't think it was Dennis, was riding through town and they blow up the bank. So, uh, we got the horse of the chief of police and whoever was doing the blowing up the bank wasn't really good at judging how much explosive to use. So it was a huge explosion. The horse took off, fell over the cliff and had to be shot. So, and this, this is the chief of police's horse. So suddenly we were not extremely popular. So 
We knew that, you know, they were going to be looking for ways to get rid of us um, and that they would be searching our room. So at the end of the day, um, Dennis had a pickup truck. Everybody would line up with their trucks, give them to Dennis. He'd lock them in the truck for the night. And then the next day when they'd come to work, he'd give everybody's trucks back. But they, you know, they searched the rooms and um, we, we were not popular after that. Um, but, you know, it was, a, it was great fun. I mean, it was uh, such a trip. It was a month. And then some people went down the Amazon after and got lost. And, you know, people would go to Machu Picchu and take acid. And a couple of people wouldn't turn up for a couple of days. One day, um, it was Laszlo Kovacs on that film, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Isn't it yeah. um, he, uh, uh, it was our day off, so we all decided to take a little acid on this hillside, and Laszlo was shooting that. I don't know if that, I don't think that ended up in anything, but it was a very informal situation. Um, and uh, so how was that? It's interesting because it seems to be such a different way of filmmaking um, compared to nowadays. It's the kind of production I think that is only possible in the, in the 70s, it seems. Well, absolutely. What happened, the reason it came about was um, it was just after Easy Rider. So the studio figured, because they were so surprised at what happened with Easy Rider, well, let's give Jack and Peter and Dennis each a million dollars and let them make a movie and maybe something will come of it. So they, they all went off and did their movies and nothing really happened. I mean, you know, Jack did a basketball movie of some kind. Um, and uh, that's just sort of how things went. Everything was a bit of a crapshoot. You know, well, let's try this, let's try that. And then, you know, of course, it became much more committee and, and uh, money people. It's very casual. Mm. It's interesting that this is your your first experience um, in the movie business. Uh, this is such a such an unusual production and such an unusual film that that yes. brought you into the the world of movies. Yeah, yeah. It got a little a little more um, constrained after that, you know. And it was never as interesting as that again because the material was never as good. You know, when you when you start off in something that has such a strong story. I mean, no, no, not I was thinking of Chinatown, but Chinatown was one of the earlier things that I did. And once you can see that there is great quality, you know, everything else is just sort of oh well, I'll do this. Mm. You know, it's credit. How much of that part um, did you um, did you shape in, on, on that day that you were there? Um, you do a lot of like little things with a pen that's um, you're having difficulties writing with a pen um, and you do that little mm -hmm. sniff with a nose at, at, at some point at, at Jack um, when he talks to you. Um, and, and did you did you improvise those those moments? Yes, yeah I, I didn't I just wanted to be sure I knew my lines and I thought um, when I was in the in phase dressing room waiting to do the scene because that was, I was, you know, you're called for a certain time that all you do is wait around for a while and they were struggling with Harry Dean. And um, 
I was a little nervous and I thought, you know, um, if you're not gonna have fun doing this, then it's not the right thing to be doing. So I just sort of forgot about, I mean, I just was able to feel less nervous. And I'm, the thing about Jack is, I think most actors will tell you, is he makes it very easy. Because when you work with someone who's that good and that at ease, it's infectious, you know? So I wasn't nervous and Jack wasn't nervous. And um, I just thought I should have a good time. So I didn't even think about the things I did, really. I didn't prepare them in any way. I just, they just came to me at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it worked out well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a perfect little scene, I think, um, in, in, in all of the details. And you're right when you say that, well, it always gets a huge laugh, that scene. I don't think it's the only one. There are other mm -hmm. scenes, like when, when Jack Nicholson uh -huh. is telling that uh, the, 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 the Chinaman joke, for example, at the beginning of the movie. But yeah, your scene mm -hmm. does get a, a, a really good reaction from audiences. Yeah, I like that. That was fun. Um, and then after that, um, you know, uh, whenever I'd go on, I did commercials too and other things. Whenever I'd go out on a call, you know, everyone just sort of perked up when they, I mean, either they knew that I'd done that scene or they realized in the midst of a casting thing that that was why they had called me that, you know, oh, that scene was so great. And, and so, I finally realized that it wasn't just a scene that uh, would be forgotten. And Roman even said it at one time, I was, uh, it was my 30th birthday, I was in Rome at Romans and Jack was there and Warren Beatty was there. And um, it was just a lot of people and a lot of fun. And they gave me this nice surprise birthday party. And um, Roman said, you know, I think your scene may be my favorite scene in the movie. I really love that scene and everybody that's seen it and that I've ever seen it with or talks to me about the movie just thought that was such a great scene, which was nice. Wow. I wanted to work with him again. Um, the, the opportunity didn't come. Mm -hmm. uh, an interesting moment, um, you know, when Roman was about to leave the States because it became apparent uh, for a number of reasons that the judge was going to send him to prison for a long time, period. Did you read the book on, um, that was, came out in the last couple of years on the making of Chinatown? Mm -hmm. by, by, the book by Sam Watson, you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. actually, I have it right here. Um, oh. This one, you mean? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. It's a great book and very accurate in so many ways. Um, Roman and I had a mutual friend um, named Stefan, Polish. He had known him from Poland. He was a ballet master and I took ballet for like 12 years or so. So Roman knew he was going to split, but it was days before. And um, Stefan said to me, uh, you know, I thought it'd be good for Roman just to come and take a a ballet class. So I want you just to get his mind off things. 
Uh, and Roman is so focused and he can get into anything. So he said, I want you to take it with him, make him feel more comfortable. This was, you know, after Chinatown. So Roman came, was, and he was dodging the paparazzi all the time. Roman came, nobody saw him. And it was just so interesting. You know, he was not particularly good, but he was, you know, he was just completely present. I mean, we were, this is what we were doing. We were taking this ballet class. And, and um, I just thought in retrospect, it was so interesting. You know, we had this lovely moment um, together before he left the country for good. And looking back on it, it's such a unique uh, visual, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, I didn't see him until years later when um, uh, he was getting ready to do a pirate movie, mm -hmm. which never together. And I told him I'd like to see about maybe working on that film. And the only way I can place it in time is the Concorde was still flying. And part of my incentive was I was going to fly back from Paris to New York on the Concorde, which was a treat. I had no idea, of course, as any, no one did, that um, they would quickly end the Concorde uh -huh. flights. Um, so I saw Roman and his new wife, and it was great to see him. And he was, you know, very excited about um, this next project. And, um, you know, we're still in touch periodically. Um, but it's a pity. I mean, he did good work after Chinatown. Tess was a wonderful movie. Um, but what his career could have been if he hadn't been blackballed in that way. You know, to this day, it's just so... I mean, it's really the main reason he hasn't been able to come back is just a vendetta of the L.A. police because mm. they were pissed and embarrassed that he got away. So 50 years later or so, there's still, you know, no, you can't come back. And of course, at this point, you'd have no interest. Mm. Such a strange time. Yeah. And then many years later, you were brought back to, um, to uh, appear in the scene of the sequel of, of uh, Chinatown. I was wondering how that came together. Was that through your friendship with uh, Jack Nicholson? No, it was, um, interestingly, it was, uh, I knew they were getting ready to do that. I was at a market in Los Angeles and I ran into Robert Town, who was writing it at the time. He said, um, you know, we just chatted for a moment. He said, oh, I, I, you know, I like the way it worked out so well in uh, Chinatown. I've written a scene for you in the new movie. So uh, to Jake, so I said, oh, that's great. So I wondered, you know, what it might be and didn't, hear anything for some time and then um, <clears throat> I mean I was simply cast and had to go um, well you know to the wardrobe and all that and I had to get fitted for this thing they put in my mouth to keep my jaw wired shut um, which to affect the way I spoke of course so um, that was a great help actually because it gave you um, something to work with And um, I remember just, you know, driving up to Ventura to shoot that day. And um, it's always fun to work with Jack. I mean, one of the things I love about the way he worked as a director, which I'd never encountered before, but other people 
apparently do this sometimes. Um, it's so odd when you're doing a movie that, and you're preparing for a scene that they then yell action. You know, it's like fire. <laughs> and, and you're in character and you're, you're ready to go, but it's just, it's annoying, you know? So what Jack does is he tells the camera to roll at some point that you never really know when that is. And he just has a con is having a conversation with you. And then we just fall into the um, dialogue of the scene. And it's so sensible. I thought, why doesn't everybody do this? It just makes it so much more natural. The, you know, the, the, um, the, the stepping into it because you're there already. So that was, um, that was great fun. I did that. We didn't do too many takes of that. Um, it was a good day. Good shoot. So, I mean, I had read the script and, you know, I thought, hmm, well, I don't know. Um, and it was only kind of halfway there. And I thought, oh, perhaps it will become more interesting. But um, then seeing it, um, I thought, oh, no, this is not going to fly. Because, of course, there are the expectations after Chinatown. And then there's this movie. And I, I mean, I of course couldn't be objective because I'd been in Chinatown and, um, and my thinking just wasn't, well, no one's gonna bother with this and it's gonna be bad. Um, but it was still a good time. Mm -hmm. it's not, and I was, I was very pleased that um, Bob thought of, you know, writing me in again. It isn't essentially, I don't think I meant to be the same character. I just think it's meant to be uh, a reference for those who have seen Chinatown. And I'm sure the most people who got to Two Jakes had seen Chinatown and were there for that reason. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and I think I mentioned to you, uh, I don't know, you know, I think a big part of the reason that Chinatown well, timing is everything. That Chinatown get, didn't get the recognition it should have. Is the it was released the same time as The Godfather, and The Godfather got all the Academy Awards, and Chinatown only got, ironically, the award for screenplay. Mm -hmm. And of course, Town was still pissed off because Roman changed the ending um, for the better. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the two Jakes then went up against The Godfather 3, um, which is in a yeah. uh, nice kind of symmetry, I guess. Exactly, exactly, yeah. But yeah, I, I actually saw you as the same character. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's not, I think you have a name, the character has a name in the uh, credits of the two Jakes and uh, in Chinatown it's, it just says uh, like Hall Brackets Clark uh, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but to me, you're the, the, the same character. I was telling somebody about, you know, how you appear in both movies. And I just said, well, he oh, hasn't gotten friendlier in 16 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun. To, and easy for me to be that, that particular person. That was cool. And when I look back on, I mean, I've only seen Chinatown maybe three or four times, but um, 
sometimes it's on TV and I'll catch my scene. And it, it's so interesting to see yourself that long ago. Mm -hmm. And I remember my main, one of my main thoughts when I was um, just about to go on to shoot the scene, Roman looked at me and he said, because, um, you know, I'm young. I, I was young and my skin was really good. He said, your skin, it is too good. Go back to the dressing room. Tell them to put pimples on. <laughs> and I said, oh, fuck. Not only do I have no hair, I have to look like shit. So <laughs> it was, you know, I just thought this close-up was going to be a nightmare. <laughs> but, you know, it was right for the character. I totally understood yeah, absolutely. I think the just the contrast between Nicholson and you is is great in that scene, um, and I think those little details sort of sharpen that that contrast and make it a little bit more funny. Yes, yes, I agree. Well, that's what Roman was so good at those kind of um, subtle. De I mean, nothing escaped his vision. Nothing. There was no part of the frame that he hadn't examined, you know. And you, you see that so rarely, I think. So you did do a, 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 quite a number of other films where you had uh, a small parts, but with very, um, you know, people who, be, who are or who became very famous, um, like oh, yeah. uh, the, the Kirk Douglas Western, for example, Posse, um, you were in that one. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Well, of course, I was there a month, it seems, in old Tucson, which was a, West, a Western town that was used a lot um, for Western settings. Um, I remember that because Kirk was such a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he's first and foremost an actor, you know, and he wants a great deal of attention. He had a lot in common with Stallone. And uh, when I met him, it was interesting because um, I was up for one part that I didn't really like that much, but I thought um, doing the station master would be much more interesting, who was described as this old guy. And so when I met with Kirk, I just said, you know, it seems to me that given the time period, the station master wouldn't be an old guy because of the responsibilities involved and because people didn't live that long. You're not gonna have some old guy running the station. And so he said, oh, that's an interesting thought. Let me think about that. So he called me back in, he had me, said he wanted me to do that part. And, you know, I, I mean, it never occurred to me at the time that that was kind of an unusual um, opportunity, I mean, to do what I wanted to do. And then I said, I was really kind of pushing it. Um, I had had a meeting with, you know, th th there's this, this thing on movies that I always notice. Either the wardrobe is wonderful and it looks lived in and the characters look appropriate or the war wardrobe is costumes of the period. And you can immediately spot a costume picture because the clothes haven't been worn uh, since you know, they were put on for the first time for that shot. The wigs are bad, things are just out of whack. So um, 
I met with the wardrobe person. And of course, on Chinatown, we had Anthea Silbert, who was one of the great uh, costume designers. She went on to production. And um, uh, so I said to uh, Kirk, I said, you know, um, I worked with Anthea Silbert on Chinatown and we have such a great rapport and she's so good at wardrobe. I'd like her to do my clothes for this movie. <laughs> and he said, really? <laughs> I said, yeah, um, she's fine with it. She, you know, she's down at Western Costume all the time. He said, all right, you know. So, um, I mean, he was starting to maybe see that I might be more trouble than I was worth. Um, and Posse was such a bad movie. I mean, it was such a, a dated kind of script. And, you know, it, it, I mean, Kirk was Kirk Douglas and he was very famous and he did a couple of good movies. But a Kirk Douglas movie was basically Kirk Douglas with his, uh, you know, shoving his cleft in your face. I mean, he was just this guy, although he did some good work. So on the movie, um, you know, there's just so much waiting around, but there were some very interesting people on the, on the set. Um, and he would say things to me like, uh, you know, I'd be waiting for a close-up. Oh, actually, the thing I remember most is, did you see the movie? Mm -hmm. No. You yes, did? I okay. Have. You remember the sequence where I had to run up the water tower? Yeah, but the, the burning train that comes into the station, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I said to Kirk, I said, what's going to prevent me from being burned alive in this sequence? Oh, don't worry about a thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I was like, well, you know, here, train's getting ready to come. I have to do this thing. And I couldn't think of a way out of it other than to say, I really don't think I'm going to do this because it, it, it's ter terrifying. And it was, you know, the heat from the train and he had me do it two or three times, but, you know, he, he developed this, he treated me a bit like I was his kid and he'd, um, it would be like, okay, now, you know, I walk, want you to walk up into this close-up. I don't even know why I'm giving you this close-up. You know, that was sort of this general attitude, which is such a good setup for a close-up, right? Um, and he just, he was like that throughout, just sort of slightly pissed off. Okay. And I, well, he was that way with so many people. Um, but uh, I just remember one day I wanted to ask him something and I, I went into his dressing room. And he was uh, with an eyebrow pencil drawing in his cleft so it looked even more pronounced. His pants were around his ankles and he was getting what he said was a B12 injection. And I thought, it's, it's so funny, this guy who looks so um, muscular and forbidding has the skinniest legs I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> You know, that's one of my favorite images of him. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, certain movies that just were such a drag to work on, although I have really fun times on that too, um, I would get checks for years um, for residuals 
because they would be released and re-released on television. Um, you know, uh, Rocky Three, I think. I, I didn't even do anything on that movie. I still get checks for that. <laughs> Really? I mean, yeah. I mean, they're not much, but it's just, uh, you know, then I think of actors who have done masses of movies and have big roles who can literally live off their royalties and definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I've seen you at, uh, in, in, in Rocky II, uh, the scene where he shoots the commercial um, and, and you yeah. put makeup on him and then yes, you say finito. Yes. <laughs> right, right. I, I watched that movie just up to through past my uh, uh, scene and then stopped because at that point I just, you know, I never liked him as an actor. Mm -hmm. I thought he just, uh, he shouldn't have cast himself in his own films. I mean, I know he became a great big star and still works in movies, but I just never liked his persona. And he was, um, I think the only reason he gave me the job, when I went to meet him, I had a book of, uh, you know, pictures from various things. And he thought I, I reminded him a lot of him, that I looked a lot like him at the time, which was very strange. So, all right, that's a good enough reason to give me a job. Um, but then it was, it was raining all the time we were on this set and he was just so far behind. And, you know, you're just sitting around for days waiting to do a dumb scene in a dumb movie. And I was just sort of, not terribly grateful <laughs> to have the job. And my, my energy was not, see a lot of actors um, hang out on set all the time to either, either they're interested, which I doubt, because if you're not working, why would you be interested unless it was a great director, a great scene, or just because they sort of feel the the director or the star expects you to be there. Um, well, I had a nice dressing room and I had a good book. So I never showed up until my scene was ready. Um, and I think he was a bit annoyed with that. You know, aren't I interesting enough to, uh, for you to watch me work? And, you know, he's in this absurd little costume. And it's so unlike anything in reality. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is, you know, This is as good as it gets after Chinatown. So my energy was very, let's just get this out of the way. Mm. So we just kind of ignored each other. <laughs> And when these movies went on to make all this money, I just thought, what a poor reflection of taste in America that they would like this. Mm. Um, what can I say? Mm. Yeah, times have certainly changed over the years. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Now, one of the movies that, that you did, that's, I think, one of your biggest roles that you played, Mother Jugs in Speed uh, by Peter Yates, mm -hmm. um, where you're actually part of that ensemble and you're in quite a few scenes um, interacting yeah. with everybody that else. Good fun. Um, Peter Yates wasn't much of a director. Um, I don't think he ever gave me any direction that I recall. Uh, there were a lot of people, um, <clears throat> you know, Cosby and Raquel and Harvey Keitel, who was just sort of, who's this guy? Um, but I became very close friends with Dick Butkus, who was my partner in the movie. Mm -hmm. And he was a very famous football player. And um, I had 
I had no interest in football. Just, you know, a bunch of guys bashing each other. So when I met Dick, he was, you know, I mean, guys just worshiped him. We, if we went out to dinner or something, because we spent a lot of time together, you know, guys would come up for autographs. And I mean, they just, and then want to talk about some play and some game. And he was very polite. And, and the first thing I said to him when I met him was, you know, I've never seen a whole football game. So I don't have that to talk to you about. And he was just so relieved, you know, and we were so different from each other um, that it was fun to hang out. And he was very Catholic. Um, he had three kids and, a, oh, he's still alive. I have to be careful what I say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I try to be like kind when people are alive. Um, but I adored him. We had a great time. In fact, I was living in Malibu at the time. He was living in Florida. And not long after that, he moved the family out to Malibu because he liked it so much. And, um, we were just great buddies. So that was the good part because we just hung out together, you know. Um, Raquel surprised me because she was so tiny and so fragile. And she always photographed so big. Mm. I mean, she looked... She, and she photographed so well. She, she was just this tiny little creature and seemed um, tense. She just seemed really tense mm -hmm. all the time. And there wasn't an inkling of a sense of humor mm. of any kind. Nice enough, but I thought, what a drag to be her. Mm. I was just with it. Um, Cosby was just Cosby. Uh, the old Cosby before. <laughs> before we knew <laughs> what was actually going on. <laughs> um, Keitel was just serious um, and friendly enough. Um, oh, and Larry Hagman was on that mm -hmm. too. I quite like He lived near me in, in Malibu. Um, yeah, it was an amazing group of people, which I think was why it got made. Uh, they just got very good. Got lucky, I think it was probably just a time when there was money enough for everyone and no one had anything better to do because the plot was pretty lame. But um, that was a fun one. No one ever really saw Peter Yates much. He was mainly in his trailer talking with people. Um, I don't remember uh, ever being direct in that movie other than to say, well, you're over here and you're over there. And he didn't strike me as being, I don't even remember what movies he'd done. I, know, I think he got to direct that movie because he'd, which is often the case, had a successful movie prior to that, whatever that might have been. Um, but that was enjoyable. That was fun. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, you, you sort of, you didn't make any movies anymore. Um, the last ones are around 1980, 1981. And then there was a, there's a huge break before the two Jakes uh, comes in. And then the last one you did, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, which is another really funny part in a movie that's not so funny, I think. But um, it's, it's, it's a nice little scene in, in that movie. I just, I just uh, Joel, who directed it and wrote it, um, uh, was a friend at the time. And so he asked me to do that. I said, sure. So um, 
it was my idea to fall into the grave. Um, it, it was a dumb little scene, but I thought that made it interesting. Um, and I was just surprised when I read the script that he was able to get the money to do it. I mean, but he got very lucky. He got, um, wasn't it Helen Mirren? Yeah, it was Helen Mirren. Um, and, you know, my, there are certain actors who um, you pay what they ask, and if they're not working, they'll show mm -hmm. up. I think uh, two good examples of that in their later work um, in terms of movie stars are Pacino and De Niro, because here they had this, each of them, this body of work, which was so um, respectable and so so much quality. And then they started doing this crap. And Pacino in particular became such a caricature of himself. You know, every movie you could count on him just to yell and scream. And I thought, you just really have to block out everything they've done after a certain date and just think about their earlier stuff. And there are certain actors who you pay their price, even if the script is garbage, they show up. If, they're not, if they don't have a better job to do, they get paid. And the attitude is, no one's gonna see this thing anyway, so what does it matter? And, um, you know, she, I mean, she was, her quality is always visible. Um, there was not much really for her to do in that movie, but he just got really lucky. And then he got lucky again in a movie that he did. Um, he got managed to get um, that actor who, was very popular for a while. Um, Clive Owen, mm -hmm. yeah, um, for a movie. Um, but I think part of it was his partner named Travis was very good at, um, he was sort of the producer at getting money and getting people together. He was very charming, um, but mm, not a lot of talent there, just sort of disappeared after that. Mm. And the thing is that um, you know, you can go out on 20 auditions and have numerous callbacks. And if you get, say, one job out of 20, you're doing fantastically well. I did a bunch of commercials and found that to be true and um, as well. And auditions are a drag, you know. When I started out, an audition meant meeting with the director. And then, you know, quickly you would know or not. And then it became, well, there's this casting director. So you go and you do put things on film for the casting director. And the casting director is a frustrated person who thinks they should be directing, you know? And the whole process became so lame. You know, every job I got, it was because the director knew, like with Roman, that I was right for the part. They didn't have to see 47 takes or have 50 mm -hmm. takes. Um, so, you know, like with Chinatown and the two Jakes where the parts were written for me, I just decided I don't need this. You know, it's not, it's not worth the time and energy mm -hmm. for me. Um, there are more interesting things to do. So, my attitude since then has been someone wants me for something, they can reach me. I'm not that, I love doing it, um, but I don't love what you have to do to get it now. 
I mean, essentially, if you want to be a working actor, you have to have um, perseverance, mm. essentially. Uh, we see so many people on film who are really rather mediocre, and we ask ourselves, why are they there? Well, they just kept coming back for more. Mm. They just ignored the rejection. They just kept coming back for more, and so they're there. And that's, uh, I mean, when we see truly talented people working, it's amazing that they have been able, with their level of sensitivity and talent, to persevere. Mm-hmm. Well, that's my take, anyway. Um, so, you know, I still have a few years, um, one year or 30, maybe. And so maybe in that time, I'll do something else, have a late bloom. Well, that would be great. I would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what have you been doing after you gave up acting? Well, um, uh, for a period, I did a lot of interior design. Mm-hmm. Uh, my work was published in Architectural Digest. I just sort of um, fell into it. Um, a good friend of mine, China Phillips, there was a group called Wilson Phillips. They were very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew them since they were children because... China was um, the daughter of Michelle Phillips, who was an old friend. And um, the Wilson girls were Brian Wilson's daughters. So um, this was when they first um, became famous with their big hits. And I don't know if it was true in Europe, but um, so they had new money and China got a place. And she said, look, I'm going on the road for a year. You have great taste, just make it nice. So that's an ideal situation. It's like you don't have somebody who thinks they have taste coming up with very bad ideas, which is usually the case. So I just did it. I mean, I I always had I always saw everything when you look in a room as an empty canvas. So you just fill it. And I had a natural sense of um, balance and composition and color and all that. So I did that. Uh, But then uh, the only problem with that is people. Um, People and their bad ideas. And the more money people have, the more they think they know. So then you have to spend half your time persuading them, no, that doesn't work there. Or you can have that if you want, but try and tell them mostly it's just gonna fuck up the room. Um, So I stopped doing that at a point and I found, um, you know, I would buy a house and I would make it perfect. And then five or six years later, I wanted a new empty canvas. So I would sell the house and as a result, make much more money than I paid for it and put into it. And so I thought, well, this is nice. You get to design and you don't have to talk to people. So um, I did that and did a lot of traveling all over the world I've been. Um, I think the only places I haven't been is Antarctica and the Arctic, mm-hmm. you know, all of South America and Europe and Scandinavia and Asia and Malaysia and everywhere, um, just exploring. Um, and uh, then, I, you know, I've been coming to Hawaii since I was a teenager and um, love it here. So I always thought, you know, if it, the occasion arose, I could get something and look at the sea, it would be lovely. So 
I got this 10 years ago. And then, you know, I'd always lived in Los Angeles, um, except for a couple of years in England. And um, it never occurred to me to live somewhere else. But suddenly I realized my, when my parents were in their 90s, the only reason I'm here is because they're still alive. Um, let's get out of here. So I moved to Palm Springs. I'd come in to visit my parents every six weeks. And whenever I'd come to visit, I'd think, how did I manage to stay here so long? It was such a great place to grow up. I mean, it was a wonderful place to grow up. But it just, in the end, became like so many other cities, too crowded. And the more people you have together in a place, the less attractive it becomes. People are stressed out and um, not connected. And, and the more concentration of people, the more people want to put a wall around themselves, both figuratively and literally. So it was a great relief to find myself in what seemed a small town at the time, but then I stumbled upon Sedona uh, about six years ago, which is a fabulous place up in the mountains. Um, in fact, they're just having their film festival next week. Um, and so I've got that place and now I'm thinking even because America is so fucked up um, that I might, I'm very interested in New Zealand. I've spent some time there. It's very difficult to get into for various reasons, good reasons. They want to keep people out, uh, especially foreigners who want to come in and buy up all the land. Um, but uh, I, I'm looking at distancing myself more and more from uh, the mainland mm -hmm. of the United States because it's not moving in a particularly good direction. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in the meantime, you know, if you're fortunate enough to, uh, I just want everything to be beautiful, whatever direction you're looking in. And that can be done. I mean, geography is destiny. You pick a place in nature that is beautiful and you control, if you can, your exposure to people. I see many more trees than people on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can go days without seeing people except for a quick trip to Whole Foods or something like that. Um, so, um, you know, I'm fortunate in that way. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. I read a lot. Um, I've taken up uh, pottery during the pandemic, which I quite like. I do that every week. And, um, you know, I stay in touch with, I have friends from uh, high school that I'm in touch mm -hmm. with. So, it's, I think it's important to have people who have known you throughout your life, mm. it's, uh, especially if they happen to still be alive. Um, so it keeps me busy. Yeah, those are the Getting really uh, strong, very strong friendships, I think, those that have been going on for decades, even, so, even when, when you haven't seen people for quite a while. Um, I mean, it happens when you live in different countries and everything, but the people you knew 20 or 30 years ago, that's a, 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 a very special bond, I think. Oh, of course. And you can pick up as if your conversation dropped off just yesterday. Mm. I mean, there's that through line. And it's especially comforting when people knew you at 
various stages of your life and you then. And in many ways, it's like, particularly because, um, you know, as they say, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Um, <laughs> there are so many people that uh, I still know who came through that whole time period. And it seems like three or four of us together make up one whole memory because <laughs> you see people and they remind you of something that's so vivid to them and you're trying to piece it together, and, you know, and, and, or you run into someone on the street and you look at them and you're thinking, oh yeah, we spent so much time together. Did we fuck? <laughs> you know? If you're trying to put that moment together. Um, well, yeah, it's it's nice to have that. Are you still in touch with the people uh, you worked on? Did um, uh, you work with on the movies? Um, well, you know, I haven't been in touch with Jack in a while. Um, Jack kind of has withdrawn a bit. Um, he, he, you know, he used to be much more active, getting out and playing golf, and but since it seems he's really stopped making movies, I kept thinking he would keep going. I mean, he was, even some of the later movies which weren't quite the quality. I mean, he has such a great uh, history of film, um, but he's just put on a huge amount of weight, doesn't get the exercise he used to get. And, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what's what's going on with him. I don't know any people who who see him. Um, you know, it's so interesting. He still lives in the same house that he's had for 50 or 60 years. It's a teeny house, mm -hmm. small little, I mean, relatively when you think of what movie stars have, but what he did do, it was, um, it's down a long gate off Mulholland and it's got a big gate on it. And Brando, was his only neighbor, which was great. And he, Brando was off this way, Jack was off this way, up on a hill, and Jack just bought the only two houses next to him so he would have complete privacy. So, you know, he has, mm, sort of uses them as guest houses and stuff. But to have such a teeny little bedroom and bathroom and uh, uh, such a small little house, he's got an amazing art. I mean, most of it is just stored at another house up the coast because there's no room for it. But collection of art is um, huge. I mean, all through his early career, he started collecting um, very valuable pieces. But it just seems odd that if you have this great art, you would want to be in a place where you could be looking at it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but he's, he's a very loyal person. I mean, uh, he has the same phone number. If I called him today, you know, I know he'd take my call. He's uh, just been a good friend since my early 20s. And some people are not consistent in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but let me see other people. Um, I don't see Dick Butkus that much. Well, I'm not in California anymore. And he had heart bypass and things like that. Um, no, Faye, uh, I remember driving Faye home 
from the set one day. Um, and she just asked me for a ride. I had this little yellow car with a red top. And it was called the Seata. And it looked a lot like those old MGs. Mm -hmm. So I drove along. Uh, she asked me to come in. And we were just chatting briefly. Then she got a call and I was just wandering around the house and I walked into her bedroom and it was the most bizarre thing. She had this big bed frame, you know, that you would put a mattress on, but there was no mattress. There was nothing. It was just empty. <laughs> and I thought, well, where does she sleep? <laughs> Everyone had strange stories about Faye and her odd behavior on set. But, you know, in the end, as they say, it's, it's what you see mm. on film matters. And no matter how, what her process was to get it there, she was, she was good when she was good. Mm. And then it's so unfortunate that Mommy Dearest sort of ended her career. I mean, everyone's entitled to a bad movie, uh, I should think, mm -hmm. I mean, or at least one. But that just sort of did it for her, which is too bad. Um, and then she, you know, some actors, especially women, when they get to that certain age where they think, oops, I've got to preserve my look, mm -hmm. and they start doing surgery, and it works for some. And then for others, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. because you never know until after, and there's no go. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I look at Nicole Kidman. And I used to think of her early movies and she had such a unique beauty. And I mean, of course she's still beautiful, but she looks kind of frozen. Mm. You know, every movie you can sort of see, oh, she decided that there wasn't enough chin. So let's do a little more chin. <laughs> You're so distracted by that. It's yeah. I think frozen is the exact, the perfect word for that. Um, when, you, when you see that on an, especially on an actress. And it's such a shame because I mean, the, the, the face is such an important tool for an actor. And if, if they can't move the face anymore, and it's just this kind of mask that they have, they, they kind of rob themselves of the expressiveness that they have. Okay. You know, but if you're looking at your face and it's three stories high, and all you're focusing on is these crow lines. You say to yourself, oh, well, I'll just do Botox all the time and that will solve that. But then of course, you're not able to uh, frown. <laughs> yeah. so it's a, not the best trade in the world. You know? <laughs> I mean, you look at someone like, um, uh, who in the account? Oh, Francis, Francis McDormand. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a terribly big fan. I think she's done some wonderful work, um, but it does get a bit repetitious from my point of view. And her choice of material is questionable. Um, but, you know, it seems like she goes out of her way to pick parts where she can just look as bad as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's someone who probably could look kind of pretty in a certain light. Um, I don't know why. Yeah, she's kind of become known for these very rough characters in a way, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. And that last movie, it was like, well, all right, I guess that was interesting. But on the whole, if I'd never seen it, my life wouldn't be any less. Mm. You know? Strange. 
Uh, there's one movie which I wanted to ask you about, which I um, haven't mentioned yet, which is also one of your early ones, uh, and also ones where you have a, a bigger role, actually, uh, which is Wild Honey, which you did apparently after <laughs> after the last movie. So how did that come oh, yes. about? <laughs> how did you come across that? Um, I was, let me see, it was... This must have been 60s or 70s. I, I think it was, I don't remember when it was, um, but the producer was a friend of mine and he told me he was doing this movie. It was, he called it um, soft porn, I think, or, I mean, it wasn't hardcore. It was, you know, he was very keen on the storyline and, um, I just said, sure, whatever. And I barely, all, all I remember is vaguely showing up. It was a period during which everything is a bit hazy. Um, all I really remember about the movie was that I think my hair was still long. Mm -hmm. So it must have been before Chinatown. And I had a t-shirt that I loved that I got to wear in that movie. It had like a star on it or something. Um, and I remember nothing else about it. And I don't even know if it ever came out. I don't know if, I don't know anything about it other than um, I showed up. Mm -hmm. I think it's amazing that you came across that. Were you actually able to see a print of it? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Really? I have a copy of it. I love that. Wow! And it's it's such a it's it, it's so funny to see you in that movie um, when you since I know you're from Chinatown and the difference is just so um, so great. I mean, like you said, with the hair, you have this have long oh. hair there, and you play this sort of well, this cult leader um, who is this just very very counterculture kind of child, Charles Manson type in a way. And to, to see you, yeah. to, I know you as the kind of very uptight clerk who is very, very uh, rigid about <laughs> everything. And then to see you in that part yeah. uh, as a cult leader, that was brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I love that. I, I haven't heard the name of that movie, I think, since I did it, whenever that mm -hmm. was. Yeah. Well, that was a very strange. It was very foggy that time. I think it was sort of a period of a great deal of pot smoking. <laughs> <laughs> very hazy. It was around the time, as I recall, of the Monterey Pop Festival. And, you know, there was so much going on during that time. Yeah, which I guess makes it a very interesting era. I mean, it. it... Oh, yeah. I mean, you just never knew. I mean, you know, I lived, um, Terry Meltzer was a good friend of mine. He was a record producer. You may have heard his name. Uh, he lived in the house that Roman and Sharon lived in where the murders took place on Cielo. And I lived several blocks away. And um, he was a good friend of mine. I spent a lot of time with him up at that house. And um, we, we traveled a lot all over the world. He, was, he produced um, The Birds, who was a big group. He did that song, Tambourine Man. His mother was Doris Day, who of course was Doris Day. Um, 
And one night, um, he was kind of living with Candace Bergen at the time. And um, I, she was working on a movie. I was, I spent the night up there because sometimes you get loaded and it was a winding road down and you just don't leave. And um, in the middle of the night, he said, we have to leave. He had a place in Malibu and he never came back to that house for some reason. And then Roman and Sharon took the house and um, uh, I had unfortunately met Manson through Terry and Dennis Wilson, who was in the Beach Boys um, a year or so prior to that. And he was very creepy, I didn't like me around him. So, um, and Dennis was the one who kind of brought him in to meet Terry and said, oh, he's got great music and, you know, maybe you would produce him. So Charlie got this idea that maybe Terry was going to help him have this music career. So, um, cut to, oh, Manson actually found out where I live because this girl, who was driving me crazy, who was following me all over, very rich girl, came to my house one day and I was in the middle of a project. I said, listen, do me a favor. Um, she had met Charlie as well. And I said, I'm told Charlie has this lovely ranch. Why don't you go out there for the weekend? Then when you come back, I'll be, I'll have some time, you know. So off she went and then she came back um, a few days later, looking slightly deranged. And she said, um, oh, Charlie's out. In those days to get a divorce, you had to go to Nevada mm -hmm. uh, because you could get a quick divorce there. And so she said, um, Ch uh, oh, Charlie's outside with the girls and they're all on acid. And I told them I would come back to the ranch with them, but I'm going to have a miscarriage. So she went into the bathroom. She said, tell them I can't come back. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, this was sort of not an unusual situation. It seemed unusual at the time, but typical of many issues that would arise. So I went out and said hi to Charlie. And the car, it was an old Studebaker. In, and there were, were two seats in the front, but in the back, instead of seats, there was just hay. So there were a bunch of girls on acid in the back on, on, in all this hay. And I said, you know, Charlene really wishes she could come back right now, but um, she has to go back to Reno to finish her divorce. And he said, oh, okay, uh, do you have any acid? <laughs> I said, actually, no. <laughs> he said, okay, well, I'll remember where you live and drove off. And yes, exactly. Um, so... Uh, it wasn't long after that she had the miscarriage. She went back to Washington. Um, there were many more chapters of that. And then, you know, the night of the murders, a group of us were leaving the Daisy, which was like the club of the time, the equivalent of the um, Studio 54 in Los Angeles only way before that. So John Phillips, the moms and papas, several of us were walking out at the same time and we'd all been asked to stop by um, Romans because 
a woman was out of town and Sharon was having some people over, but it was like a, a weeknight and they didn't go. And then the next day we hear about all the murders and everybody's calling around and trying to find out who was there. And it never occurred to me. I mean, I couldn't, it never occurred to me. I had a couple of other encounters with Charlie um, when it became clear that that's who it was. It was such an odd feeling to not only know the people who were murdered, but to have had this encounter with the murderer. Yeah. And I had the FBI visiting on a regular basis for the next year. You know, they come around and want to ask questions about a particular time. And, um, you know, I could remember maybe a season. It was summer. Mm -hmm. What year was that? Mm, I remember summer. He said, and the FBI said, how come all you people can remember a time of year and not remember the year? <laughs> Which was very funny. Um, so then after they caught Manson, he said, um, you know, here's a number you can call anytime because some of his people are still out there. And we don't know, you know, it was like everybody had security people and all that. Um, so that's when everything kind of changed because up until then, you know, parties of John and Michelle Phillips were just open. I mean, if you heard there was a party, there was no one at the door checking to see if, you know, what your connection was. So um, from then on, things naturally changed radically. Um, so... Uh, and Charlie's dead, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think he died in prison. Yeah, yeah that that was an odd time. Um, I, I, I can't. I, I can't even imagine what that's like to. Um, I don't know to have come into contact with such a circle, and then in retrospect, you sort of you you realize the serious seriousness of that, and the uh, also how lucky you were that you weren't deeper in those circles. Um, Exactly. Yeah. No, it was, and it was so, it was just so bizarre. And the thing that strikes me as particularly interesting is all these years later, people with all the murders that have taken place and all the similar situations, they still remember the Manson. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who are too young to have even been born at that time the name resonates. I find it to be, I guess it's just the way something sticks, mm. you know, very strange. Yeah, I think it's, it sort of represents something. I think as Sam Wasson actually says that in his book, that there are actually two dates where the 60s ended and um, or a couple of occasions where the 60s ended and that was in 1968 after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and then in 69 with, with the Manson murders that's where the 60s ended period that's yeah. and I think because it symbolizes such a sort of the dark side of that of that era I think that's why it's become such a such a reference point yes yeah yes I agree completely very, uh, very strange. Well, the good news is to have lived through all that, mm. you know, and uh, progressively, I mean, the 60s did sort of linger into the 70s in many ways, 
um, but then you know easing into the the early 80s and the whole AIDS thing and the impact of that and you know the the presidents we've had since then the Reagan who was such you know Reagan got off so easy I mean Saint Ronnie I mean here's a man who would not utter the word AIDS till his friend Rock Hudson got sick. Mm. And so then, you know, all these people died because he would not accept the fact that it was an issue except for those people. Mm. And he was totally homophobic. His, both, uh, his son, Ron Jr. and I had the same ballet class. We had the same ballet master. And I remember one day, Nancy dragged Ronnie to come and watch a class because he wanted nothing to do with anything that was at all unmasculine. And, and um, I remember uh, Ron sitting there, Ronnie, uh, watching the class with this sort of pinched look on his face and his orange hair and the Secret Service outside the door. And he never once glanced at his son, just was looking around, couldn't wait to leave. And then Nancy said, let's go. And um, you know, this is the creep who became president. We had a funny moment. Um, I was growing a lot of pot in my backyard and uh, I wanted to get rid of some plants that were too many. So uh, Ron Jr. came over one day and I said, look, I'll give you a bunch of these plants. So um, stuffing them in his trunk and um, this friend of mine, uh, and this of course was when he was just starting to run office. This friend of mine was taking pictures and we had these great pictures of Ron Jr. Um, stuffing these giant marijuana plants in his trunk. And I thought once uh, Reagan was really running, I thought, wouldn't these pictures be lovely in some town? Just sort of make him such a more interesting guy running for president, which we never did. But one day we were, uh, they didn't give him money. He lived in this little room above someone's garage and um, I was up there with him and we were smoking a joint and we see Nancy um, walking up the driveway with her maid trailing behind her, the, you know, the caricature of the, the black maid from another time period. And he said, oh, fuck, there's Nancy. She comes around once in a while to make sure my place is clean. So we're opening windows and trying to blow smoke out and everything. And I said, listen, I'm going to run. You just, you know have a good chat with Nancy. <laughs> it was just such a funny moment. Um, yeah, we had some interesting people. Oh, I, you know, I got so much better picture. I mean, you can't really appreciate America unless you see it from another country's point of view. Mm -hmm. And when I went to college in England, um, it was mid sixties and <clears throat> Looking back on America at that time and the European and English point of view of America gave me a much better picture because when you're a country that is isolated by great oceans and you cannot avoid uh, the cultural brainwashing, mm -hmm. you know, America's right, everything, you know, and then you go somewhere else and you get this other perspective, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what they're talking about. How come nobody else gets this kind of 
reporting without leaving the country. Of course, since then, things have changed greatly. Um, but uh, in Europe, you're so fortunate because everything is so close and everything spills across borders. Yeah. Something you have to concern yourself with. Yeah, I think these days through the internet, it's, it's easier to get that different kind of perspective. Um, oh, I, rem I remember, I don't know who, it, who, who said it, but um, somebody said that, you know, when I want to, somebody from America said, if I want to know, know what's going on in my country, then I, I'm, I'll watch a British news station. Um, and I guess it's still true to some extent, but it's just become so much easier to get that kind of information. Oh, completely. Yeah. It's a, it's a different world in so many ways. Better in some ways, but for every um, alleged advance, something is sacrificed. It seems mm. you know lose something, and just particularly environmentally, with the awareness on so many levels of the uh, destruction mm. of the planet and the species, and the fact that so few people really care. Really, yeah. I mean enough. To elect someone who will do something about it you know i mean the planet won't survive unless we make dr dramatic changes but all anyone's concerned with is uh, next week mm -hmm. yeah and, and how to make a profit and how to let everything grow um beyond comparison yeah